0: And welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 47, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood.
1: Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox.
0: And who is that really intelligent guy in the corner? It's not me. (laughs) It's It's definitely not me. (laughs) Ravi sporting his new spectacles. Oh, God. (laughs) Looking very stylish today. Four eyes. (laughs) I
1: came in, I was like, who the bloody hell's out! <laughs> I look even more nerdier. <laughs> <laughs>
2: hey, it suits you, I like it. No, yeah, I nah, think cheers. you look good, man. Yeah, Thanks. well, uh,
0: now we are recording this. Obviously, it was uh, technically Black Friday today, I suppose, you know, the time this comes out. Um, oh, I've got all my Christmas presents on Amazon already. <laughs> See, Black oh, really? Friday, something weird that's like, you know, come in the UK in the last couple of years. I still don't quite get why we do it, considering we don't have Thanksgiving. Yeah,
2: I find it's a bit odd, but I'm surprised by the fact that Ravi said that he's got all his Christmas gifts already because of, this is crap, like,
1: I could get a toothbrush, I guess.
2: Like, <laughs> <laughs> but nothing I actually want in the moment reduced.
1: Yeah. Like. I only got two presents. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. That's I you have yeah. to buy it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. mum and so, dad. <laughs> yeah.
0: If you are having a break from people uh, fist fighting in Asda to buy a 50 quid Polaroid TV, then uh, thank you for checking out the show this week. <laughs> and it is Christmas coming up soon as well. Now, we've been thinking, obviously, like in four episodes, what have we been doing the show like an entire year? Insane. Which is Woo! nuts. And uh, we thought, what we are going to do for Christmas? So uh, we've come up with a little idea of what will hopefully be an annual thing. The annual Retro Hour Christmas Quiz. Hey, um, hey,
1: I'm we, gonna batter you all. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be an hour of quizzing and we're gonna video uh, record it
0: hopefully. Yeah, yeah. As well. So I think Christmas jumpers are compulsory.
1: Oh, great.
2: Um, Beer and
0: mince pies, <laughs> and uh, glue wine. Blue wine, here yeah. yeah. cider. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this is coming up. It's going to be the week of Christmas, so, uh, you know, the episode that comes out just before the Christmas weekend, um, that should be a bit of a giggle shouldn't it? Yeah, it would be good. I, I imagine that we're going to get slightly more slurry as the show goes on that week. <laughs> but, yeah.
1: yeah, watch out for the editing with swear words. That's going to be...
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, the Retro Hour podcast would not be possible without your very generous donation. Um, every week as well, we do have a little link on the front page of our website, theretrohour.com. Obviously, everything we get through the website goes back into the running of the show you know SoundCloud subscription server costs website Ravi's logos <laughs> yeah Ravi's very stylish glasses which he paid for himself where'd he get yeah. them at eBay
1: eBay yeah. yeah they look like these kind of NHS ones you
2: know, <laughs> the big I, I genuinely thought they were like on the NHS Just didn't want to say anything <laughs> I, know, I know I genuinely thought like he'd been de- like you know prescribed them or something
1: I, I'll like. invest in a better pair in the future
0: I like them I think they look <laughs> I'll good I'll probably break them in a week <laughs> but um, yeah thank you so much for your donations this week i uh, gotta say a huge thank you to kim Jorgensen and aiden olone who both made very generous donations if you'd like to as well of course it all goes back into the running of the show all you gotta do is click on that paypal link you'll find it on the front page of the RetroHour.com. now every week on the show we do strive to bring you the best guests uh, veterans of the video game industry and we've got an amazing guest this week
1: this guy steve turner you know he helped found Craft Gold and made some amazing titles. You remember Rainbow Islands, Fire and Ice, and this guy's worked with every publisher: Telecomsoft, Sega, yeah. Virgin, Renegades. Insane.
0: Well, Graftgold did some amazing games throughout the eighties and nineties, and uh, he's such an interesting guy as well. So uh, yeah, and you know the arcade conversions
1: that they did were just such high quality and standard. It was like some of the best stuff that came out on
0: systems. And there are some good stories as well about um, you know TelecomSoft. Uh, they weren't the easiest company to work with, apparently. So oh, it was a uh,
1: British Telecoms. Yeah, it was yeah, company, yeah. Oh, very really? random. Yeah, oh, the world. That's
0: a bit random. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, Steve will be telling us all about that. Steve Turner, uh, one of the founders of Graftgold. He's going to be on the Retro Hour in around 25 Five minutes from now. Now let's get into this week's stories. Obviously, you know it's been Thanksgiving uh, week and Black Friday and all that in America as well. A lot of people doing Christmas shopping, and uh, the Nes Mini. Obviously, a story that we've been covering since it first got announced. Apparently, there's a worldwide shortage of them.
2: Yeah, I've seen that. Um, <clears throat> everything I've seen is they've just sold out everywhere. Like I didn't pre um, pre order one, and uh, I thought, oh yeah, I just be able to pick one of them up for Christmas or just pick one out, pick one up. Didn't think they'd be that popular, but. Everywhere sold out, like everywhere. Like I you know, Google it for like shops in Nottingham and everything and it's just not seen one, not don't know anybody who's managed to get a hold of one. And uh, watched a few reviews online and they've all said like how difficult it's been for them to get a hold of. I was watching a particular YouTuber the other day who was who owns a game shop and said that he ordered ninety of them mm-hmm. and they got sent two. So one for himself and then one for the shelves. Well, there's a
1: a few eBay really expensive ones that have been
2: appearing as well. Well, Some go for like
0: five grand. Some people are listing them for. I
2: saw one for, like, one. somebody had listed it for like £1,800 and I was Mm -hmm. just like, oh, don't be so ridiculous. And then you're going on eBay and they are like kind of around that price.
0: Well, there is um, an article here on Polygon and uh, the headline is, uh, the NES Classic Edition shortages prove either one of two things. Nintendo is underhanded or incompetent. Now, if you look at it, I think, though, I mean, there are some people that are speculating, and what you said there about a game shop only getting delivered two of them will probably add a bit of credence to this, that Nintendo are intentionally making a shortage of stock to increase demand.
2: I would completely agree with that because of obviously when Amiibo came about a few years back, um, they did the exact same thing. Um, and it all stems back to the 80s as well, you know, with like the microchips and everything with the NES cartridges and how you had to use their stuff. And there was always a shortage, inverted commas. So this is something which has been happening with Nintendo for 30 years. And once again, it's just happened again. You know, they know they've got something really good, what everybody's going to want, whether that be customer or, you know, you know, publisher or something. And they just, they probably have thousands of them, you know, already made. And they're just not sending them out because of, they want the hype and they know, you know, people are going to want it. Uh, but what also gets me as well is when it was announced. It was said it was going to retail for like thirty nine ninety nine, and it was forty nine ninety nine. Like, which I thought was odd. I don't know if that's just retailers upping it and everything, but. I've not seen it cheaper anywhere online than $49.99, which is still a good price, so I'm not
0: complaining. Yeah, better than the five grand on eBay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I reckon um,
1: also they've probably got Wii U's completely in all the stores and tons of stocks of that, so they may be
2: thought... Oh, like, I'm waiting for them to come down, and they just won't because of, that's just Nintendo through and through. Yeah,
0: no one's going to buy Wii U this Christmas, though, yeah. let's be fair. Yeah. But I think with the, uh, the NES Classic, um, you made a good point there about you know the Amiibos, and I remember, you remember when the original Wii came out, that Christmas, yeah. like 10 years ago. That was um I remember then how scarce they were. Yeah, everyone yeah. was trying to get hold of them for the, Wii bowling and all uh, that.
2: the Wii Fit as well, the, mm. the balance board. Like nobody could get a hold of them and they were meant to be like fifty quid when they came out and yeah. like everyone was selling them for like eighty quid because of you couldn't get hold of them and it was you walk through town and game shops would have the sign, you know, with the chalkboard like, Oh, we've got <laughs> we've got so many in, like manager special, ninety nine ninety nine. It's just like, Well that's not special manager's rip-off,
0: pull my pants down while I walk in. <laughs> but it's, you know, the thing is, it is quite a shrewd move, and it it, it does obviously work. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, Ivan wasn't really interested in it at all, because, you know, I've got original Nez. That's fine by me. I've got an Everdrive yeah, for yeah, it. Same. And yeah. I was like, you know, I'm not really interested. But now I've been seeing because like, I want one, I want one. Yeah. I'm like, well, maybe I want one too. <laughs> yeah. I'm exactly the same.
2: I was like, like I said, I didn't pre-order one. I might pick one up at some point. And now there's all this hype and I'm just like,
1: I need it. Like, even so it- they've turned it into that desirable item, haven't yeah. they? Oh, That's, yeah, definitely.
0: Uh- Actually, speaking of this, um, there was some other Mini-Nez news that came out this week. It's been hacked already.
1: Yeah, I've seen that. Well, now, this is great because... Nintendo hardware never usually does because
0: it's always closed up, but
1: they've had to use Linux for this,
0: haven't they? So, Well, apparently this, this runs on a Linux foundation anyway, they found. It's, um, it's ARM-based. So, um, so it runs on an open source system anyway. So, And Nintendo have apparently kind of released that to developers, kind of you get the source code and stuff on it, but they managed to get Ubuntu running on it. Now, they're saying, you know, obviously, at the moment it's kind of a closed platform where, you know, you can't download any more games to it or anything like that. But now they've got Ubuntu running on it, I suppose technically it means, you know, if you can add extra storage to it somehow, you could load like you know other ROMs and stuff. I mm. imagine other emulators. You could have a Mega Drive emulator on there. Right? <laughs> 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 but what they are saying is though, apparently the, the guys that have done this are just doing it for the sake of doing it, and they're uh, they're not really interested at the moment in you know trying to get extra games and that kind of thing on there. So they're saying they're just doing it for the heck of it because they're not meant to kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but I do love the top st- <laughs> the top comment on this uh, article on Ars Technica. I imagine someone will have Doom running on it within the week then. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so uh, if you do manage to get a of a NES Mini, you know, we'll be interesting to uh, find out, first, where you got it from. Yeah. And uh, secondly, what you think. Do drop us a tweet at RetroHourUK or on Facebook. We'll pop the links on our website at theretrohour.com. Now, since we're on like a Nintendo kind of vibe at the moment, do you remember Mike Tyson's Punch-Out? It was yeah. a classic, wasn't it? Well, just, it? Or just Punch-Out, Yeah, one or the other. <laughs> well, of course, Same you know, name. you might remember the music. It um, went like this. Yeah? yeah,
1: yeah. We're nodding our heads in the studio. <laughs> yeah. I think AVGN did a, a wicked series on uh, Mike Tyson as well.
0: Well, there's a podcast called the uh, 302010 Podcast, and uh, they've actually realised that the music from Mike Tyson's Punch Out actually came from a Gillette advert from 1958. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to hear the original? Go on, then. on the air. Oh, yeah. And it's got words.
1: <laughs> this is like one of those proper old
0: war style kind yeah, of yeah. British parfait. Yeah. <laughs> when it gets Are the you singing. doing
2: your bit? <laughs>
0: yeah. It's even got boxing gear as well. <laughs> Fantastic. I like it. You yeah. should remix. That's going to be stuck in your head for the rest of the week, now, yeah. isn't it? So uh, if you want the comparison, we'll pop that the show notes at com. Now, we're talking about this um, survey that Sega um, of Japan put up on their website. And they were asking which classic franchises fans would like to see Sega revisiting again. And uh, quite interestingly, they've now published the results.
2: You see, I found this really interesting because they did this, I was saying earlier on, they did this about eight years ago. Yeah. And um, the results are completely different. So last time, Nights into Dreams was first, uh, and this time it's 10th. Uh, but I find that quite interesting because of the, the results of the last time is they did actually s- produce a new Nights into Dreams games uh, for the Wii uh, as a result, because it was like the demand was there and Streets of Rage was like a close second.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, whereas Streets of Rage has come ninth this time. But number one... Um, I don't even know what that is.
0: Sakura Wars.
2: Yeah, like considering I'm a big Sega fanboy, um, I don't know Sakura Wars. Everybody's probably going, "Oh, as if he doesn't know
0: that." Well, I thing. think you know, they did only put this survey on um the Japanese website. Yeah. And I, you know, I've looked it up, I'd never played it before either. It's oh, a okay. Game on the Saturn, but it is quite a franchise at Sega, owned. Looks like kind of anime kind of stuff. Oh,
2: okay. That makes me feel
0: a bit better. So, uh, <laughs> but Jet Set Radio interestingly second.
2: Yeah, you know what? I've never liked Jet Set Radio. Okay. I've just never been into it. I've just I'm not saying it's a bad
1: game mm. or anything like that. It's just whenever I've kind of did picked you- do, uh, ever play Future, Jet Set Radio Future, which no. was the second one. No, it was on the that, Xbox, wasn't it? Yeah, that was much easier oh, than was it? the first one. Yeah, oh,
2: okay. it,
0: it flowed a lot more.
2: Oh no, you know. I just. It wasn't the case if I didn't find it flow. I just I remember playing it and just not really getting into it. So very
0: stylized, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Graphics very nice. And good soundtrack on that game as well. Oh, yeah. Um yeah. Uh, Shenmue obviously makes the top list here. Number five, Virtua Fighter.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, Panzer
0: <laughs> Dragoon in there as we well. We mentioned that, didn't we? Well, the ones yeah. that you wanted. What you, you were after? Uh, Skies of Arcadia. Yeah. You mentioned that um, makes yeah, it yeah. here. Skies
2: of Arcadia, number
0: and, 8 uh, And number nine, Streets of Rage. Well, yeah, I, I was wondering what like a modern Streets of Rage would look like. And I think if Sega kind of did it, you know, they're obviously doing this new Sonic yeah. uh, 2D game. I think they'd have to do it. To 2D. Yeah, you couldn't have it you like, you know. You could have it 3D. It'd have, to do,
2: it'd have to be, it'd be obviously like an Xbox Live game or something. I don't think it'd be able to be a full
1: release these days. Well, did you ever play Die Hard Arcade? Yeah, uh, so, Dynamite Decky. Yeah, so yeah. Die Hard Arcade was originally supposed to be developed no. as... No, there was a no. mess up, wasn't there? No. No?
2: No, he's wrong. He's wrong. <laughs> don't listen to him. <laughs> I know this story. Go on, Joe. It was fighting force. So Die Hard Arcade was Dynamite Decky. Mm-hmm. in Japan so very much like you know Super Mario 2 on yeah, the NES yeah. on the NES um and it was Dynamite decky first and okay. then when it came over here it became Die Hard Arcade ah. which was really bizarre cuz obviously Die Die Hard was quite an 80s franchise obviously it was still running for was still running now but in the 90s it wasn't as big as it was in the 80s and then this random game of it came out um but, yeah, no. Um,
0: That's why we have you, Joe. Yeah, there we expertise. go. <laughs> Fighting Force wasn't a good game, though, was it, either?
2: I don't mind Fighting Force. Oh, okay. It's no Streets of Rage. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I quite like Fighting Force. I've played it through a few few, couple of times um, on PS1 and Dreamcast. And I think I have played the N64 version. But it's no Streets of Rage, and there's a lot more kind of gunning in it. And, obviously, it's a 3D up that, like, like you say, don't really work that well kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Didn't,
0: didn't deserve the Streets of Rage franchise title. No, yeah. no. Well, interestingly as well, what I think is quite interesting about this is uh, they've got the favourite Sega characters here. Yeah. Sonic doesn't even make the top ten. Yeah, I think people have had enough of Sonic. They've been burned too many times. (laughs) Eggman is at number six. Yeah. (laughs) Which is like... Alex Kidd. Yeah, Alex Kidd's in there. When was the last Alex Kidd game? It one night? one, nine, two, no something like that. So uh, if you do want to check out the full results of this survey, quite interesting. I wonder where we'll go with this. I mean, I imagine they did it for a reason, so maybe some of those franchises are going to be revisited very soon. Mm-hmm. Please, Streets of Rage, please. <laughs> but make it good. <laughs> yeah. uh, we'll put those at theretrohour.com. Now, um, I do quite have a bit of an affinity for old-school FPSs.
2: Yeah.
0: And uh, there is a new one coming out, um, potentially on Steam. Apparently it's been given the green light, uh, called Warlock Revenge. Never heard of it. Oh, well, it's it's a new game, yeah. So, but looking at it, I mean, if the link here on uh, one of our favourite... straight website, um, IndiaRetroNews dot com, yeah. actually reminds me a bit of like uh, Heretic and Hexen, that yeah. kind of stuff. It's yeah, like yeah. Uh, or kind of early Quake, you know, the early Quake games. Just, just a bit
1: less three uh, D, isn't it? It's it's kind of got that two D look of Doom. Yeah, you know, uh, it, it yeah, with well, a kind of faked three D. Yeah,
2: it reminds me of Elder, the original Elder Scroll mm-hmm. games as well. I forget what they're called, the first two, but it looks a little bit like that. There's also uh, a game
0: called Blood. Okay, yeah. Oh, it's Blood. Looks, yeah, yeah, that yeah it looks
2: wicked. really similar
0: too. I've been playing a few of these through recently, you know, since I um, modded my Sega Saturn. I was playing uh, Hexen on there not long ago. Yeah. And I do, you know, they've got quite a good style about them. And, you know, I was actually, cause I got, you know, I got the PlayStation 4 VR, and uh, I was chatting to someone about what games would be good to look at in VR, and he said, imagine the original Doom in virtual yeah, reality. No, but then we got to that point, you just said then, about the characters, they're kind of be like sheets of paper. It's <laughs> 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 kind of like, you are spacing you, aren't they? You're yeah, yeah, at the back of them funny, being like, actually. you know, you're very yeah. thin, you're kind of being run over by a steam runner. <laughs> Fighting cardboard cutouts. <laughs> you know so, yeah. what I mean? So, uh, but it's cool to see, you know, you know an old school FPS again, um, inspired by DOS Classics. So uh, that's going to be hopefully coming to Steam very soon. And speaking of Doom, uh, this is awesome. Doom, the original Doom, has been turned into a platforming game. All right. So uh, this is called Mini Doom. Okay. And what they've done is uh, they've actually kind of took the the layout and the monsters and, you know, kind of the, the original doom yeah um you know playthrough and they've actually made it into a, a 2d side on platforming <laughs> it game it
2: looks awesome actually well huh. it reminds
0: me, you were talking before about you know the fact that newcomb started didn't it as a yeah a yeah, game. A platformer yeah the first two
2: newcombs were for like dos weren't they yeah but yeah, this this looks, looks, looks really sharp.
0: cool they've kind of got
1: um some really nice fire effects and stuff in there you
2: know what it looks like it to me it looks like the angry video game nerd game
1: yeah yeah i can it's see that it's actually on steam actually yeah. i've not played
2: them myself yeah on.
1: no i never played it i saw some footage it looked pretty yeah, good. It looked good yeah
2: it looks good so. This would be
1: great on mobile, I reckon.
2: Yeah, probably won't get the backing, though. How is it we always come back to Doom? We always come back to Doom.
0: Like, <laughs> Everything comes back to Doom. Yeah,
2: Virtual Fighter even popped up again. Because <laughs> I'm on. <laughs> <laughs> it has to pop up.
0: <laughs> but at the moment, this, uh, you know, this mini Doom, it's a free download as well, um, available for Windows. It looks a fun little game. Uh, apparently, it's only like, you know, I think it's only like one level or, or five stages at the moment, so oh, it's okay. quite short. But yeah, it looks a bit of fun, free, yeah. free download. And uh, this is another game that was one of my favorites back in the old days, and I'm actually quite staggered by how good this looks. Now, we did mention when this um, it appeared on the forum, that Pinball Dreams, um, which you might remember it was uh, Digital Illusions, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And they did Pinball Fantasies as well, um, out on like, the Amiga. was that, was that the...
1: 21st century entertainment, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. and
0: well, that was, yeah, Houston turned Houston, it in there, didn't they? Yeah. And it came out on like you know loads of platforms back then. The Jaguar even had a port of it, didn't it? Oh, really? Um, but they've actually ported <clears> this game... Pinball Dreams, which was the first one in the series, to uh, the 8-bit Amstrad CPC. <laughs> now, when I read that, it's a group called um, Batman Group. And if you look at the video they've just released, of the gameplay on it, I'm, my jaw dropped when I saw that that was running on an Amstrad. It's got, like, the proper, you know, vertical scrolling. It looks really smooth. It's got, you know, all the bumpers and everything in there. There's nothing taken away from this game. Obviously, the color depth is uh, a bit lower than the, uh, you know, the 16 and 32-bit machines. But I'll pop this li- uh, video in our show notes. You've got to give this a watch because it looks so impressive. And they've actually released, like, you know, a five to ten minute little preview of it. Well, do you know Batman Group's history? They're the one that did that
1: amazing demo, batman Valve, uh, which was for the 500, which was like a whole th- beautiful animations of Batman and the whole city. And okay. They digitized all the images. So these guys are really on it with coding. And by the look of this, the ball physics, I don't think you'd be able to maintain those ball physics on an 8-bit
0: machine. Mate. Yeah, well, that is absolutely is quite nuts. quite smooth. I knew that the, the CPC, like, you know, had some, like, good graphics modes and stuff like that, but I think often a lot of the time we got spectrum ports, didn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, but you're looking at this now and, like, you know, that's the best I've seen on that machine ever. And the fact that, you know, people are still squeezing extra power out of a... 30 year old machine is just insane. It's just like they've kind of stepped down in res a little bit. Yeah, but you know, if you squint a bit or look through Ravi's glasses, you know. (laughs) know, (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, we'll pop all of that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. And thank you for checking out episode number 47. We'll be out again next Friday. And of course, you can get it from all your favorite podcast clients. If you do listen on iTunes, please do leave a review. Yeah, we were top 10 last week. Yeah, we were actually, weren't we, with Stuart Chaffé? Yeah. Good guess, wasn't he? And speaking of good guess, We've got Steve Turner from Graph Gold. Now he's gonna be coming up for the next 40 minutes. The inside story of all those classic games of Rainbow Islands conversion, Uranium 2, Fire and Ice, working with Telecom Soft, Sega Virgin. This is definitely one if you grew up playing those games in the 80s and 90s, you're gonna enjoy. Here he is, Steve Turner on the Retro Hour, and we'll see you next week.
1: Ciao, thanks for listening.
0: You're listening to the Retro Hour Podcast. Just want to give a big shout to Dave Garside as well, who actually suggested this week's interview. If maybe you've got a hero in the video gamers industry that you'd love to hear on the show, why don't you drop us a quick tweet at Retro Hour UK? We will try and sort it out. And now it's time to get the inside story on games like Fire and Ice, Rainbow Islands, how you do arcade conversions, working with some of the biggest gaming companies in the 80s and 90s. Welcome to the Retro Hour Podcast, Steve Turner, formerly of Graft Gold. Thank you for coming on it's a pleasure well we're going to get some of your stories from your amazing history in the world of video games we thought it might be quite good to start all the way back at the beginning though um what was your first gaming experience where did it all begin for you
3: well my first uh, computer was a zx80 and for gaming it was a bit of a disappointment because every time you you made it do something the screen went blank I spent ages working out how the machine actually worked and disassembling the ROM in the days before you could buy books on that, and I was doing it all by hand. And I worked out, if I got the timing right, I could actually get graphics onto the screen, and I didn't manage to get a single asteroid going across the screen. And uh, the very next week I saw an ad for the ZX81 and that completely blew everything that I was doing out of the water.
0: <laughs> but even back then, I mean, just getting something on the TV must have been amazing.
3: Oh, oh it was. I mean, I, I had the same feel as everyone else, of, you know, even in BASIC, printing up your name and then printing graphics in BASIC and, and whatever. I, I did try a little submarine game in BASIC and um, that was a kind of grid base game where you you gave orders to your submarine and you had to say whether it surfaced and i just ran out of memory before i could uh, uh, get enough lines of but basic in because i i only had the 16k spectrum at that point
1: <laughs> yeah um so would you be kind of rushing to the arcades to look for games rather than the zx81
3: we didn't have arcades as such in, in Whittam, Essex, it, it's a kind of rural town, but what we did have was um, lots of pubs, and, and each pub had a single arcade machine, so on a Friday night and Saturday night, and and that's how I, I met Andrew, we, we used to go around with a, a group of lads, kind of almost doing a pub crawl, not so much for the beer, but to play different arcade machines.
0: What kind of games did you, uh, did you play in there then? Do you have any titles that you remember?
3: There was one with a, a racing car used to go around the track and, and one to three cars used to come in the opposite direction and I, I played that until I turned the score back to zero. <laughs> I, I, could, I could get through every level and you, you had to go around the, the whole sequence of screens a, a couple of times to do that and it was really disappointing. When it reset to zero, there was no sign that we'd achieved anything at all, and I never played that machine ever again.
0: <laughs> As a gamer, that was always disappointing, you know, when you he, when he finished a game and didn't even get a little well-done message or something.
3: Yeah, yeah that's right, and, and you know, because we didn't get a high score or anything. It, it, the machine just, because we wondered what would happen when it would run out of digits, you know, we, we thought, oh, you know, maybe there's an Easter egg or something nice would happen, and it was just a total disappointment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, how did you kind of learn to program yourself and, like, make games then? Was that kind of a, an Attempt to make you know better games than you'd seen already.
3: It, it was because I was a professional programmer. I, I used to program uh, uh, kind of commercial systems in, in both assembly and cobol. Um, But there there, there was no kind of moving graphics. The best we had was an IBM terminal, um, which you could sort of display a static graphic on. And that's kind of how I came about meeting Andrew because um, I had a friend in in the, the company that knew Andrew. He said, oh, this guy actually gets moving pictures on his terminals and he programs these games at work. And I was really interested in that. So he brought a great big stack of punch cards along and we tried to get the operators to load them up when they had a sort of spare moment but unfortunately we didn't have the I think it was a kick system with the big operating system then and we just didn't have that the correct version so we never got that working but in a roundabout way that introduced me to Andrew for the first time
1: and uh, were you coding games at that time or were you coding something else
3: I I was thinking about games. I desperately wanted to to do something other than uh, like spend the rest of my life it, it was an insurance firm and and you know it was programming is interesting but the re, the end result was pretty boring. And I started reading about micros in magazines and I, I, I kept thinking, that, oh, there's got to be a way in, into this. And, and when I saw the first games in magazines, I'm thinking, wow, I, I like them on the arcade machines. I, I reckon I could do this. If, if there's a machine with enough of the capabilities, You know, I'm, I'm going, I've, got, I've got enough ideas to be able to do it better.
0: Was that kind of a, a nervous decision to make? So I imagine with video games being quite new, you probably didn't really know how long the industry was going to last for or how big it was going to be.
3: No, I, I mean, I'd actually finished and signed my first game with Houston before I handed in my notice, and because c- I knew I wanted to do this. I saved a whole year's salary, so I knew... That even if I just spent the way I was spending before when I had a job, I could last a year if I got no income at all. But so, so I thought, right, it's, it, it's it's worth the gamble. And my firm made it clear: well, well if if I want to come back, you know, they, they'd um, welcome me with open arms. So I've, I felt sort of safe. And I thought, well, if if it only lasts a year, it's a nice holiday.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You did it a lot more sensibly than many people around that time who, uh, you know, just (laughs) kind of got all the money, then blew it all in like six months.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, I I had a a wife and and my first child, Mark, who I, I think he was about two years old then, sort of toddling around so so you know i had had sort of responsibilities and a mortgage because i was was a bit older than your your average kind of programmer at that time Mm -hmm. but what what i had was my industry background i'd I'd had formal training as a programmer and as a systems analyst and what i did i applied that to gaming so so rather than a sort of slapdash approach i kind of designed the code and that that I think gave me a bit of an advantage in trying to squeeze a lot into the machine and get it working in short time.
1: Now um, you went on to form ST software and you were using a a system, the platform was Dragon 32. Um, Why did you choose this machine?
3: Um, Dragon 32 came from Andrew's dad because when when um, Andrew heard that I was programming on the Spectrum, he went away and borrowed his dad's Dragon 32 and um, started just copying what he remembered of my program. And then one night after the pub, when we went round his house for, for a cup of coffee, out came this and he showed me my program running on the Dragon 32 and I was, I was very impressed. Um, so what, what happened, Andrew got his own Dragon 32 or I, I bought a second hand for, one for him and um, he came along to work for me and when he, at the beginning his games weren't selling but he used to write some of the software to assist me so he wrote a, like a little graphics editor, that was one of our first Little utilities on the Dragon 32. I was still punching in hex on my computer for the graphics before he did that, and I was still punching in hex for the machine code. Quasitron, I think, was the first time I used a, an assembler. Because wow. I, <laughs> I just couldn't get one. I, I tried a few out, like the HiSoft as, assembler, straight away. And They just seemed corny to me because by the time you got the assembler loaded up onto the machine, there was hardly any room for your source code. Well, the
0: Dragon 32 was quite an interesting platform. Wasn't that compatible with the the Tandy as well?
3: I I think it was because they both had, um, if I remember right, the the same kind of four-colour graphics. Yeah. On, on the screen, and I mean, what's nice about it, 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 it was a proper computer, you know, with proper keyboard. <laughs> but whereas, uh, next, next to it, the spectrum, well, I love the spectrum, I mean, it looked like a toy. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah that, mean... that rubber keyboard wasn't the nicest to code on, I imagine.
3: <laughs> no, I, I mean, I soon bought a proper keyboard for it and, and mounted the uh spectrum board inside of it but the yeah. problem is all, all these like little extensions seem to have th- their own nuances and for one keyboard i ordered plugged on the back of the spectrum board and then you had to put your other things like your Kempston joystick and your printer interface on the back of that so you had a kind of daisy chain of these connectors and it was actually changing um, assembler instructions like i traced a, a load a with I, and it came out load A with R, a completely <laughs> different instruction. And I, I, I phoned up the guys who manufactured the keyboard and told them about it and said, oh, no, we just did a standard interface like anything else. And I could never work out how it could actually change instructions other than that I knew one of the bits in the instruction was changing by the time it got to the CPU. <laughs> that could have messed up your code as well, couldn't it? Well, absolutely. You, you I just couldn't run code on it. But, but nearly everything that we bought didn't work with anything else like i bought a disk drive um and that didn't work with the disassembler so and the disassembler wouldn't work with the printer <laughs> so i i i had to reverse engineer the disassembler and and fit it together with the printer. Then I had to do the same thing with the disk drive and patch the disk drive in. In the end, I I got the system so I could save on a disk drive, print on the printer and disassemble. And and that that took a hell of a lot of reverse engineering and work, but at least that gave me a kind of workable way of um, doing things.
0: It's crazy to think the amount of effort you had to go through back then just to get, you know, simple things like that working. I mean, you you know, you think about the Sinclair machines and I remember like the the dreaded uh, ram pack wobble, you know, if you knocked it, the machine would crash. And...
3: Oh, that, that was terrible, <laughs> and it, it, it was really upsetting if, if you'd spent kind of half an hour just keying in mindless hex codes in a REM statement, and then, boom, the machine goes blank. But sometimes I, I used to get so upset that my wife used to come in and retype them for me. I, just, <laughs> I, I've, I can remember having a coat hanger on the back of the machine, kind of... Um, bent to clamp all all the um, gubbins on the back of the machine um, to to the spectrum. But that problem largely disappeared once I got everything mounted into the... uh keyboard, and and of course by then I'd um, bought a a board with the 48K in rather than having the expansion pack which helped, because it was expansion pack that seemed, because it stood up at the back of the machine, that was the thing that wobbled the most.
1: Yeah, so um, you were kind of working with the Spectrum at the time as well, and you also started doing some stuff for the C64? Yeah,
3: well, well, Andrew was working on the Dragon, copying my programs at first, and uh, unfortunately, I mean, Dragon must have gone gone bust. But the shops, instead of taking any titles that were in process, said, "Oh, right, straight away, they're not going to sell any more Dragon titles because they've already got so many." And it it was a mistake because titles had a shelf life of weeks in in those days. So it's a mistake to say, "Oh, we, we don't want any new titles because we've already got enough." You have to keep flushing them through, and there was enough Dragon Thirty Two owners to, uh, to kind of take new titles. But unfortunately, our, our titles sold in the hundreds rather than the tens of thousands. So uh, Andrew said, look, there's a nice new machine my mate's got called the Commodore 64. I'll, I'll convert the latest game into that, which was um, Attack, And that, that's how we got into the Commodore 64.
0: Well, how did ST Software change into GraphGold
3: then? That, that was uh, probably the time that Avalon was coming out, and Andrew's Games, I think, that just started selling, and I suddenly realised I'm going to be earning a lot of money in one calendar year, and the tax system meant that you'd be absolutely fleeced if you do that, because you just, just went up into kind of super tax. And I I had a chat with my accountant and he said look what you need to do is to form a limited company because a limited company if if it's small enough all you do is get charged 25 percent per year and and then the capital's in the company and then you pay yourself wages over that so if you have a good year you don't pay it all in tax you've you've got it ready to pay yourself for, for any bad years that follow and it was jolly good advice so um he he had a look and he, he had two off-the-shelf computer companies and, and he said, well, you know, which one do you want? There's one called Graph Gold. I thought, oh, that sounds good, because US Gold was around at the time. I thought, you know, it's sort of hints of that. Yeah. And... Uh, he, he said to me and Andrew, well, you know, you don't have to stick with that name. I'll give you a week to change the name before I, I activate the registration. But we couldn't think of anything better, so the name stuck.
0: And in hindsight, though, what, what a perfect name, because, you know, it was remembered for, like, you know, decades on, isn't it, that name?
3: Yes, it, it, it was. And I mean, if you look up "graft" in the dictionary, unfortunately, it has, it has like one connotation, which means something like um, results by illicit means. Which, <laughs> uh, but but it's its main sort of thing. I mean, a graft is, is a sort of unit of work. I think when they used to dig trenches, a graft was one man's work of the trench per per day, something like that. So it, so it stands sort of for hard work. So yeah. You know, you know, I always read it. It's creating something gold out of hard work and, and it, it kind of matched what we were doing because it, it, it was really hard in those, those days. It wasn't, people kind of you, used to say to me, oh yeah, all you do is sit around and play games all day and no, we didn't. I probably played less games then than I'd ever done in in my life. We got our nose to the grindstone and, and we're either keying in, debugging or working out how to do the next thing and it, you know, it, it was the hardest I'd ever worked in my life.
1: You um, worked a lot with Hewson Consultants. How did this relationship start?
3: I had a look at the magazines when I I had my first game sort of demo and I, I, I thought, let's look through and see which magazine adverts take my eye. And I picked out three, which were Quicksilver, Silversoft and Hewson. And they were the only ones in those days that were doing full-page adverts. And I thought, you know, if an outfit is really serious, that's what they'd be doing. They're they're the big guys. And um, I I sent my little demo tape off to all three. Quicksilver, I think it was Rod Cousins, uh, he, he was was the only one to, get to send the with ref- refusal, oh, oh you yeah, um, know, pl- please send us other games, but we're not, not particularly interested in this one c- kind of, of letter. And uh, both Hewson and Quicksilver invited me up to meet them and uh, uh, both offered me a contract.
0: What was Andrew like then when you first met him?
3: Very like me in some ways. He- he'd been to the same school, spookily enough, in Rayleigh. Um, I I think he was just a couple of years older, so I never knew him at school. But he had this sort of scientific background... Um, which which I'd i done all the sciences at school but never kind of pursued it after. So, so we, we kind of hit it off, I think, pre- pretty much immediately. And because he'd kind of played around with code, it was obvious to me he wasn't kind of like a businessman who knew nothing about games. He, he, you could talk to him about the struggle that you're having with the machine and he kind of understood what you were going through. I wanted to be with someone that, that kind of didn 't bring my games down with with kind of substandard games so you know, he he was sort of in the lucky position of being able to pick and choose the best from all the tapes that were sent him
0: well speaking of quality, Euridium um, is considered one of the best shooters on the commodore sixty four Did he have to use many tricks to get that performance out of the system?
3: It was Andrew's kind of aim to do a game that was just like an arcade game. What what he did, he he designed the whole game around that, so he worked out how much he could scroll on the machine, which was limited to the sort of centre portion, and he faked the rest by moving kind of stars and things like that, he timed out how many sprites that he could get on the machine. and Once he got all these timings, he designed the game to fit all the constraints that, that um, he, he had. And that, that's what led to, to him being able to run it at full frame rate, and, and that was his aim. He, he, he knew to get that kind of arcade smoothness and that feel, you needed to run it at full frame rate. And I, I, I can't remember any other games that, that were doing that at the time, it, it was a, a real step forward.
0: Yeah, I think even now I played that game not long ago and it still looks incredible that, you know, like you said, it's that arcade quality on, on an 8-bit home computer. It, you know, it was unheard of at the time.
3: That, that's right. And when he started, you know, I, I had my doubts and I was thinking, you know, is this going to be possible? But... It sort of shows that you know, if, if you kind of design something for the capabilities and that fits hand in glove with what a machine can do you you can really push it and and, and that that was the genius of, of Andrew to be able to recognise what that machine could do and, and to kind of j- just get the game to kind of fit that envelope.
0: Well the music on Iridium as well is um, often considered one of the best on the C64. I mean did that take a lot of work and did you enjoy using the SID chip?
3: I did because I'd done up to then is is, um, write stuff on on the spectrum. I I, I can't even remember doing it on the Dragon. Uh, Andrew must have taken my music data and just just kind of put it in. But Eridium was the first time I actually used a music package. He had this free program which came with his Commodore 64 and it, it just you keyed notes on a music stave and I thought well this is interesting I'll try and use it so I, I had my guitar on the lap and I was—I kind of worked out things and then keyed it straight on the, the stave and it all came together in about half an hour I was—I started off with, with thinking about the Star Wars theme and thinking yeah that sort of goes at the beginning yeah let's get a big old kestel crash and in my head I had like a full John Williams <laughs> orchestra going on <laughs> but uh, it, it doesn't quite sound that, like that on the, the C64 but it kind of got the right idea using the kind of uh, thick kind of notes that it could do.
1: Well uh, another publisher that you started working with was Telecomsoft. How did that come about?
3: Well after a few years with, with Houston and things sort of started go, going awry, we we knew Dominic and John at Hewson and, and also um, other staff there. Um, we were having phone call after phone call saying, look, something's up here. The bills aren't being paid. The things fall into pieces. There's rows all the time. Um, we haven't been paid at the end of the month, all, all that, that kind of stuff. And finally, one of their staff moved to telecoms. And we had a phone call saying, look, you can ignore me if you want, but your game is just going to be sub-licensed to to another publisher. But I suggest you come and talk to us at Telecomsoft because I've moved to Telecomsoft. I'm no longer at Houston's And uh, we like to talk about publishing your games. And so we went along and and, uh, we were filled with this horror horror story of um, that Houston's not going to be around in a couple of weeks' time. And... uh, that was corroborated by john and dominic at hughes and ringing us up and uh, they both rang up and said look can we have a job at graph gold because we don't think we're going to have jobs for long so the whole thing looked as though it, it was falling down like a pack of cards so I, I i thought i was taking the sensible position and and i signed with telecomsoft and the, the thing which I, I kind of regret doing now because it just didn't work out. They, they, they said, look, we've got a big legal team. We don't think Houston's going to be around to publish your, your games. You've got no contract with the two games that you're currently writing because both Andrew and me had a game that was uh, near completion. Let us publish those games. Our legal team will, will fight and um, basically you'll get the games published. Um, and it, it just seemed to me like a no-brainer and no option, but as it turned out, it turned out into a court case. Houston was rescued. It, I mean, Hewson is a very good businessman. I mean, he, he does accountancy now, and uh, he managed by the skin of his teeth to hold on, and it surprised us because all his staff were saying, it's the end, Joe, that there's no hope. And he managed to bounce back. But unfortunately, then our games were being published by Telecomsoft. A court case started. Um, the, the legal team at Telecomsoft didn't seem to deliver what they said they would, like getting our games kind of published without a big battle. In, in the end, I, I don't even know what happened, because I, I think there was a settlement out of court to which we weren't party to. But it took absolutely ages. And what it did, it alienated GraphGold Gold to all the magazines, because they were sort of cup in hand with Hewson. Hewson was very, very good at publicity and telecom soft so not so. so. So when it came to the, the magazines publishing anything to do with it, I mean, we, we were getting slated by the press at the time. It, it was a real kind of about turn for us because up till then we couldn't do anything um, wrong with the press.
0: Do you think that was to do with the fact that it was, you know, obviously it was owned by British Telecom as well, wasn't it? And I imagine there was a lot more red tape and, you know, much bigger company.
3: I, I think so, and uh, they they kind of um, started off okay with us, but it, it soon became clear well, they had no intention of staying in the industry, and we looking to sell out, and they sold out to Microprose. It, it's just sort of what was happening at the time. The, the smaller companies were being swallowed up by larger companies, and and. The, the developers were having a rough time. If you had a game in process, you weren't sure whether whether it's going to be taken by the new company, what's going to happen. It, you know, it, it, it was a the, 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 our first kind of... Um, experience of the, the, the kind of publisher turmoil and, and that really didn't finish all, all the, that was just the start of it for us, we, we, we went through a series over the next three years of, of something like five publishers either selling out to someone else or, or um, shutting up shop completely like um, Microsoft. and after that my policy was well I won't stay with one publisher, I'll make sure that I've got at least three on the go which, which made us even more prone to publishers' disasters, because the more you have, the more risk there is of them going down. But at least I always had a, another iron in the fire. But there was one year when every single product that we had was published by a different publisher from the one we started the game off with. And and some of them, of course, died by the wayside. And, and that, that, yeah, that, was, that was a dreadful time for, for graph gold. And it was so demoralising for staff when when you've worked say a year on a game and uh, then you know it's not going to be published
1: well um one of the interesting things about telecomsoft was that they had the Taito licenses for arcade games so you started doing a lot of arcade conversions and re- really good quality arcade conversions as well
3: that's right and, th- and that's really how we started our our life with TelecomSoft. As part of the deal, um, they wanted us to finish the two games that that we we were doing for Houston's and and let TelecomSoft publish them. But because they wanted me to employ Dominic and John, and they said, look, we've got Flying Shark, we need doing urgently. Do you think you can do it in six weeks? If you can, we'll inject some capital into the company, which kind of gives you a boot and starts you off. And... That, that just sort of seemed too good an offer. So I had a word with John and Dominic, and we went and had a look at Flying Shark, and we thought, always oh, it's going to be difficult, but, yeah, we think we can do it. And uh, th- that, that's what happened. So we moved to, to our, our first sort of offices outside my house, a, a funny little um, office on the top of a veg store, and um, had a crash course in... Uh, copying an arcade game we, we we learned how to do that very quickly and we always did it in the same way we we videoed the whole of the game we learned how to play it video videoed it from one end to the other and then john in, used the video to redraw the graphics and um plotted out all the kind of courses of the meanies and dominic did the the engine that ran it i converted the Spectrum version onto the Amstrad in, uh, I-, I think it took me six days, and, and so I-, I-, I had little time to uh, muck about, so I-, I basically took his code, squashed it on- onto the Amstrad, got John to redo the graphics for me, and and the main thing that I had to rewrite were all the graphics machine routines and to write a sound routine, which I had prepared ready. And very quickly, I got the whole thing up and running.
0: Well, your technique obviously worked. I mean, uh, you know, one of the most polished con- arcade conversions ever would be the uh, the Rainbow Islands conversion that you did. I mean, was, was a lot, that must have been a lot of work going into that because, that you know, that was quite an intensive arcade game, wasn't it? There was a lot going on in that game.
3: It, it, it was, and we took that on, really, because we wanted to get into the 16-bit market in a big way, and Dominic was playing around on the Atari and the Amiga, and he'd he'd written a kind of games operating system for us already, but he was struggling to come up with kind of game ideas. He had a lot of real fine demos, but, but no game. And then we had the opportunity to do the conversion, and it was great because Andrew was stuck for something to do at the time. So I said to Andrew, do you want to lead this project, you you do that and you can actually work on the 16-bit machines because he was absolutely dying to write on the 16-bit machines whereas up to that point Telecomsoft were only interested in us producing 8-bit games. And it it was probably our our first big team game. The um, Flying Shark, because it was just across um, the spectrum and the Amstrad, There, there was only about three of us working on that. Rainbow Island was the first game where, where we put virtually the company on on the game, and and had people doing all different versions. And uh, I, I, I was probably one of the only people who who didn't play a major party, and I, I was kind of managing them. But I was still working on 8-bit games for TelecomSoft.
0: Did you, you remember when the reviews of Rainbow Islands came out? Then that must have been uh, you know a, a good read when you saw those come out in the in the
3: magazines. It, it was, and it it, it it was kind of mixed for us because about the time uh, there was a guy called Derek De La Fuente who came and um, he, he absolutely raved about the game to us, so we knew it, they'd be good, and he got the first reviews into magazines. So they were just coming out when when we heard about the telecom soft sell to Microprose, and something went wrong with Microprose and Taito. I I've, I've, I've heard a story that someone at Microprose had marched into the Taito office, very bullshit, and said, oh, we own all the rights, you know, we're, 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 we're going to publish this, and they promptly said, no, you're not, <laughs> <laughs> and wouldn't talk to them. So our game, which was getting rave reviews at the time, just looked as though it would never be published. We, 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 at the time, were, were um, doing a little bit of work for Probe, uh, Fergus McGovern, and uh, Fergus McGovern just happened to, to talk to me about Rainbow, and I said, oh, yeah, it's a shame it's never going to get released. And, and he was saying, no, that can't be, it's just such a good game. It, it'd just be a travesty if that's not released. And he got Ocean interested, and... Uh, got everybody kind of talking to each other and, and Ocean did the deal with Microprose and, and so finally we, we got it released by Ocean.
1: Well, uh, another game that you got released under Virgin this time was Realms, which was uh, one of the very first real-time strategy games.
3: Yeah, that, now that's a game that uh, I'm kind of proud of because that was our first team original game. Before when we did original games like one programmer would kind of write the game and then other people would convert it onto the machines but this was a game that was conceived as a uh, to, to, it's got to work on the ST the Amiga and the PC so so we set out writing it on that, those machines from the, the outset and we had a team of artists working on it and a team of programmers um, which I, I kind of managed and it really worked it kind of showed that we'd kind of adapted to, to kind of working as a larger unit rather than individuals. And that and it, it was a nice feeling when we, we did that because um, one person would be writing one bit and another the other bit on the different machines and then we'd swap over and, and the programs would convert each other's work.
0: Well, I know around that time, you know, if you're talking the ST and the Amiga, um, your piracy, a lot of de- developers say, was a huge problem on those platforms. How did you work to defeat piracy or what measures did you guys take?
3: not a lot we we kind of admitted that we didn't have the expertise or the or the time to beat the pirates because c- you virtually the pirates were working full-time trying to crack anti-piracy systems so we always said to the publishers look you need an anti-piracy expert to do that side of it and uh, we we Used to just fit their systems onto our program. I, I think for, for realms, Virgin used the the old look up the manual kind of technique. So at least you had to have a photocopy of the whole manual.
0: And if anything, though, that you know, people that actually bought the game were the ones that had to go through the effort of doing that. The pirates just like skipped it, didn't they?
3: That's right. It it, it always annoyed us. So. Because at the end of the day, it, it's sort of money in our pocket that's going. But I, I kind of was sympathetic in the way that um, I thought the shelf price for games was far too high. Because uh, we used to get 80p per game for a 16-bit game, and then there was on the shelf for £25. And I'm thinking, how can it be inflated so much when most of the work is actually done by us? Yet we only get that tiny little portion as, as a royalty, and it, it, it seemed to me that the game still should be around about the, the five six quid mark, and everyone could make the profit of it, and they'd sell more.
0: That was always the excuse that the pirates used, wasn't it, that the games were too expensive on the Amiga and ST.
3: Yeah, I, 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 I think it, it kind of went out of people's pocket money range, and, and it was it was too much, really. And, and it showed you in the... You know, the sell, we just didn't have the sales figures there. and We, we couldn't contemplate an Amiga-only game, and that's what Andrew always wanted to do. So, so we always had to design things for the limitations of the ST.
1: Well, um, one game that absolutely blew my mind when it came out was Fire and Ice. And the sound, the graphics on that, and just the sliding on the ice and everything, it was just such a good platformer.
3: Andrew was partnered with... Um, Philip, who who was a YTS programmer, uh, artist that I'd taken on um, straight from school. And at the time, I, I couldn't afford to compete with the rest of the industry for the sort of best around. So I basically looked at newcomers that you know i don't think philip had done hardly anything on a computer at all but he bought some paintings that he'd he'd done and i said i like the light and shade this guy knows how to do light and shade he's going to be good on the computer and he sat at the screen and he he did a fish i I think it was and you could immediately see it look round and um whatever but he, he had his own sort of character which he got in the game and it went very well with Andrew's kind of fun that he likes in in games and that they really gelled as a team for for that game and I was was very sorry to leave Phil in part it was due to a guy from one of our publishers came along and he, he said in front of Philip oh I see it as Andrew and his assistant and yeah, It wasn't like that. Philip was coming up with graphics that were so fun that Andrew, you know, and Andrew hadn't asked for them, and he'd, he'd say, Oh, yeah, that's really good, we'll put that in. So it was Philip that was actually generating the game ideas just from the graphical angle. Although the genius of Andrew was to be able to work that into the game. So, so I, I saw it as a, a very well c- kind of matched team, but. Um, Philip didn't like kind of being sidelined like that, and in the end he got a, an offer, unfortunately, from Fergus McGovern, which is perhaps why um, he helped us out with the the uh, ocean deal with uh, Rainbow Islands. Although I can't remember what happened twice, but he, he made uh, Phil an offer, and Phil went to work for him, you know, which was a shame. So, So one of my best artists was poached.
0: Well, the character of Cool Coyote, I mean, you know, obviously around that time there was Sonic the Hedgehog and kind of, you know, it, was it kind of a you know a conscious effort to kind of make a, a cool kind of animal character?
3: It, it was. It started off as a bunny rabbit and it, and it didn't kind of work because um, Phil did this this bunny that had quite a large sort of pot belly which kind of flopped as he jumped around <laughs> and, and it, it just looked like a little bit gross. But we took that to... Um, Microsoft, and they kind of liked the concept, but the thing that they they really liked, we we had this. It was daft because all it was was a demo, and it ended up as the bit at the beginning of the game with Cool Coyote playing the piano. Oh yeah, to the music, and Jason had done this this excellent soundtrack, and and they signed the game on the strength of Andrew's name and the the coyote playing the piano, and then he became the main character.
1: I, I just loved the whole graphics, like the reflections in the water and everything, and uh, the Christmas special as well. That was a great
0: one.
3: I mean, Andrew had a real sort of attention to detail. You know, he, he, I mean, he used to worry me as the one paying the wages, because he, he just always wanted to go the nth bit extra to kind of do something. Like, not only would he put say, say, um, shell cases of bullets in a game, he'd want to put shadows of the shell cases of bullets, and, you know, it all takes extra programming time, but it it was that kind of attention to detail in his games that kind of made them stand out.
1: Well, um, there was meant to be an enhanced version for the Mega Drive. Uh, What happened
3: there? It's a sorry tale, really. We always had a problem with Sega because... Cool Coyote was blue, and their main character, Sonic, was blue, so they wanted to change the colour of him. But we said, oh, yeah, we'll make him orange. But then there was another game with a fox around that was orange. So we, we were having problems there. But what what happened, Virgin, who was working with us on, on another game, took the cover disc off... Uh, there was a demo on the front of the Amiga, one of the Amiga magazines, and they took it to Sagan. and said, look, we'd like to publish this game. And when we went with Renegade to see Sega, they said, oh, no, you can't submit it because it's already been submitted. And so we weren't allowed to submit our own game because a publisher who had nothing to do with the game had taken a cover disc and submitted it to Sega.
1: That's weird. <laughs> That's really odd.
3: So that led to a, a row between um, Renegade and um, Virgin. In, in the end, I did manage to kind of talk them into sort of meetings and OK, well, if Virgin have got the license with Sega and you've got the license from us, we all need to sit down and talk with it and, you know, we'll have to accept that's the way it's going to be. And uh, we, we did get the master system version agreed and, uh, through Virgin and, and that went ahead. But the, the Mega Drive system, we, we actually finished it all It was just never published, and and I I never knew why, but I I guess that somewhere along the the lines, like, the deal just couldn't be made, and uh, unfortunately it was such that if Dan didn't agree with... um, Virgin and, and Sega, if they couldn't get the deal together, Sega weren't going to take it from Renegade directly, so it would be buried.
0: Well, I remember around uh, you know, the early 90s, you actually brought back one of your uh, older titles. Eurydium got a sequel on the Amiga, Eurydium um, 2. How did you go about updating that game then?
3: It, it wasn't easy, because Andrew always knew it. it was such an iconic g- game, he was kind of worried about doing it, especially on the ST, but it was something that he was also burning to do. He, he pleaded and pleaded, can he make it an, an Amiga-only game, um, which I wasn't ke- keen to do. But I, I, I can't remember in the end whether we actually did do it on the Atari. I, I got the feeling in the end we decided, well, it's only going to work. Because of the scrolling, it, it's only really going to be any good on the uh, Amiga, so we concentrate on that one, and if at all we, we can do it on the Atari, that would just have to be a, a kind of pull and do it as best as we could.
0: Yeah, it only came out on the Amiga. Looking at this, so you you must not have gone ahead with the Atari version.
3: No, I I, I think because it, it just didn't have the um, support for the scroll, it it, it was kind of it just didn't really work, but. I think the, the Atari sales were dropping off anyway, so um, Renegade thought, OK, we'll, we'll go ahead with the Amiga. And also, we did a CD32 version, which was a definitive version of it. But unfortunately, I, I don't think that was ever released. We, we did hand over a master for that, so we did all the work, and that, that had extra kind of backgrounds. So, we also did... Um, uh, a CD32 Fire and Ice, with all extra pictures in the background.
0: Have you... Um, is there any of these, uh, you know, unreleased versions of, like, Iridium on the CD32? Have you still got those in your archives anywhere?
3: I don't think so. I, I can't remember what happened to to the at the end, because we... We had everything on DAT tape, and uh, I mean, somewhere I've got some DAC tapes, but our DAC tape reader kind of went when Graph Gold was, was wound up, so I, I never had the ability to, to look and see what was there, but it, it would have been on there somewhere.
0: I know that even now, you know, the Amiga's got a big community. If like, something like that got uncovered eventually, that would be amazing.
3: For Fire and Ice, I can't remember how far that they actually got, but if, um, Emma Copley did all, all the background layers, because we, we added this sort of backdrop in, into the thing to, to make it nicer and, and she did all these pictures for the the, the kind of um, scenario pictures for the levels, which which she drew all, all in um, ink pens, which, which were really nice. So they worked work very well for that.
1: Well, um, another title that you did on the Mega Drive was Otifants, which... Um was a, a, a very odd title. <laughs> it, it was by a German comedian.
3: Oh, that's that's right. Yeah, he actually came over in a helicopter oh, nice. uh, one, one day and uh, landed at uh, a uh, hotel a few miles out of Whittem and and came into the office to have a look at the the main character to to check that we were doing it to his specifications. You yeah, and he'd, he'd sit with the graphic artist and say, oh, no, yeah, that pixel there's wrong. <laughs> he, he didn't like the fact um, that the artist had made him a little bit more 3D because it was a video game, and he wanted to take all the light and shade off of him. The artist sort of flattened him out, but I think it went back afterwards because it, it just wouldn't compete against other video games.
1: Did they um, have a TV show as well? I heard it was...
3: Uh... They, they did, and w- we signed up because... Um, Sega come to us and said, look, we need this game, we need it really quickly. Do you think you can do it in about six weeks? We said, well, a bit longer than that, but we're doing that. They spent four weeks getting the contract to us. And I was saying, well, you better get the contract to us because this end day, you're making it an impossible task for us. But we based it, we used all the fire and ice code and turned it into another game, basically, to get the game out really quickly.
0: And they had quite big hopes for that game, didn't they?
3: Yeah, what, what they told us was the the t v show was was going to be shown on um the u k networks and was going to be bigger than the simpsons because it it was the same sort of thing about about this this little guy from a this little elephant family that got up to all these kind of adventures but um it it ne- never got onto british teles so so you yeah, know unfortunately our our game just had no u k market whatsoever because no one no-one knew what this um, little elephant was. Quirky little
0: title when you look back, though, isn't it? <laughs>
3: it, it, it was. The game worked very well. It, mm. you know, we thought, what can we do with a little elephant, code? I just thought, oh, yeah, let's get him to shoot jelly beans out of his <laughs> trunk. <laughs> <laughs> we had a lot of fun doing it, but there was a lot of late nights, and uh, Eldon Lewis was the programmer who, who took it on, using Andrew's code. Andrew was sort of supporting him, and uh, you know, it almost sort of... He was working through the night, so he just sort of became a wreck by the end of it.
0: <laughs> we're getting towards the end of graph Gold then. Um, how did it all end then? What was the story?
3: We were working on a major title for... The Renegade got bought by um, Warner when they set up a company, and they, they offered us something like a million pounds to, to do um, a revised version of a revised version of Avalon Dragon Talk in in kind of 3D. It looked really brilliant, it stopped their office when we took them a demo, and we started hiring staff to get man the team out to to do all the versions that they wanted, and about three months into the project, I just got a phone call saying, oh, sorry. Warner want to reduce their profile, and yours is one of the games that we're, we're going to stop doing. From that moment, we were fighting for survival. Uh, I, I did manage to survive I think another couple of years, but we just didn't have enough money to put into a large game. and in the end, I, I threw in the towel and sold the majority of the shares to a company called Perfect, who did the Disworld adventure games. And they, they looked a nice little outfit, and they, they weren't too big. That They seemed to have the technology that we didn't, like a network and, and whatever. The, the idea was they'd refinance us, but it, it, they did get a network put in place, but it never really happened as we, we thought it would
0: it's sad that it did finish but you did leave us with an amazing legacy of games you know through the 8-bit and 16-bit era steve and it's uh, you know it's been amazing catching up with you and talking about these games that Ravi and I both played when we were kids and uh, getting the inside stories
3: it was it was a fantastic 15 years and you know the amazing thing is that people are still talking about it we thought that these games could have you know, a couple of months' life and no one would remember them, but it's just not so. And, and it, you know, it's a great pleasure to speak to people who who kind of remember us and what we we did and appreciate it because at the end of the day, that's really what we did it for. We did it because we liked programming and we wanted to show others and and let them enjoy it. We did that more than the money, for the money. the, The money just let us carry on doing it. but, But more important was we did something that we wanted.